on today's episode of PolicyWise. In the last year, U.S. lawmakers traded an estimate of 355 million. Can you imagine? Just you can fill the House of Congress. <laughs> Legislation that would impact not only your constituency, but basically everyone in America. Why do we care if legislators have private finances and financial interests? I'm not entirely convinced that you will vote in an unbiased way if your assets are on the line. Maybe with better representation, we can have better social services. I'll say it. <laughs> Hot take. Is the major issue here then that people who have these stocks are more likely to go ahead and create laws that are beneficial to different companies in which they already have stocks? You're trying to be, uh, you know, improving, improving America, not improving your bank account. But more on that later. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of PolicyWise. Um, I am Demi Wack, and I am here with my very good friend, Masha. Um, Masha, could you please introduce yourself and also tell us what we're talking about today? Um, sure. Hi to my fans. Uh, my name is Masha, and um, I am working in the policy space right now. I'm fresh out of a master's um, and an undergrad in econ, and I'm looking to tackle some issues in representation. What can I say? I feel like representation issues are, I mean, just super important in today's age, especially with the pandemic going on and the fact that we don't have universal health care in America. Um, yeah, it's just tough. I feel like we have so many welfare problems and lack of public goods in America, and I feel like... Um, maybe with better representation, we can have better social services. I'll say it. <laughs> Hot take. <laughs> How long have you been studying similar issues? That is a good question. Um, I think most of my experience during my undergrad was in um, discrimination research, having to do primarily with ethnic discrimination and gender. Um, I think I more recently started kind of being interested in public good provision, especially um, after my master's, my dissertation was actually very relevant to what we're talking about today. Um, I studied financial interests and um, relatively recently. So I would say, would, would not say I'm an expert, but um, yeah, I would say maybe in the past year and a half, I've been more looking at public good provision, both during um, my master's and like research and also during my job. Could you please tell us exactly what you researched for your master's? I studied um, basically how private interests as a whole, but more specifically, I looked at um, stockholding, but how um, private interests are relevant to how legislators vote on um, bills having to do with energy and um, medicine and financial regulation. So that was between the years of 2004 and 2008. Oh my gosh, you were doing your master's forever. <laughs> I meant the, the, the topic of the dissertation, Demi. Um, yeah, so that was like during the, the financial crisis. And I'm really interested in how basically if you owned stock, if that influenced the way that you voted on legislation that would impact not only your constituency, but basically everyone in America. How prevalent are stock holdings amongst current legislators? That's a great question. Um, so 
my estimate is between 40 and 50 because I've I've seen some sources report 40% of members in Congress, but I've also seen 50. So I'm not even sure what to believe, man, but definitely a, a big proportion of legislators own stocks. And um, apparently there was around 225 million in stock assets, according to Business Insider recently. And in the last year, U.S. lawmakers traded an estimate of 355 million. Can you imagine? Imagine that in dollar bills, like one dollar bills. You could fill a mansion with that kind of money. Oh, my goodness. Not buy one, but just you fill You could it. fill the House of Congress. Um, okay, well, this is this is good information. I guess, like, why is it important? Like, why do we care if legislators have private finances and financial interests? Also a good question. Um, I think why I care personally, I'm not sure about other people. I'm not about to generalize. But the reason why I care is because I'm not entirely convinced that um, you will vote in an unbiased way if your assets are on the line. And like that is to say that it's not like there's always going to be a disconnect between your private interests and public interests, because sometimes, you know, voting a certain way when you hold stock in that company versus you know, what the public wants, what your constituency wants, it's not always going to be at odds necessarily. But I kind of think that there's no way that there's a 100% alignment between private interests and public interests. And that's where I see an issue. Because at that point, you're basically voting in a way that helps your assets grow or saves your wealth, either or, um, instead of kind of voting in line with what people in America really need. Um, and like I said, especially in the face of a pandemic and us not having universal health care and people owning stocks in, you know, medical pharmaceutical companies like Pfizer, um, obviously name drafter. <laughs> yeah, we can cut that if that's an issue. I don't really know if it is. No, um, but yeah, I feel like obviously like that might be more of an example of actually a lack of misalignment where I feel like you actually do want to be, you know, having companies like Pfizer, you know, <laughs> really working to get those vaccines out. And if that's what your constituency wants, like, obviously, that is where your private interests and your public interests are completely aligned. But like I said, I'm just not sure that they're aligned 100% of the time. And that's the problem, because you're trying to be, uh, you know, improving, improving America, not improving your bank account. Yeah. Well said. <laughs> we got it. That's, that's the title of the episode. Thanks, Masha. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so you gave some good examples there and you kind of went over the pluses and minuses. What would be, what's like kind of like a notorious example of where this has been an issue? That's honestly, it's hard to say because there's just been so many cases of this that are like, I, I wouldn't even, I don't know if I would categorize them as well documented, but like this information's all out there. So um, for example, I know that there was a lot of I wouldn't say scandals, but a lot of people that owned stocks prior to the pandemic coming out that either dropped stocks or uh, bought stocks in like pharmaceutical companies right prior to the pandemic hitting, especially when that was not public information. And I know like Wall Street Journal, they had an investigation where 130 federal judges failed to recuse themselves from around 700 court cases. And those court cases involved companies on which them or their families own stock since 2020. Wow. Um, so obviously that's like a really big number. It's hard to say whether or not 
that these congressional candidates or congressional representatives rather are actually, you know, obviously there is the potential for insider information. The potential here is, I would say an underestimated word. But, um, obviously there's a lot of information there, but whether or not they're actually making money is hard to say because um, someone that I referenced in my own dissertation, Andy Eggers, who I think is sitting at U Chicago right now, he his work actually found that the congressional representatives are actually, despite having information, are like not actually, I guess, improving their portfolios at a rate that is different from an average person. Um, they're not actually that good at making money. They just know where to invest, but they don't actually know what to do after that. Interesting. But um, that is actually like the opposite of what another economist found. Um, so, you know, hard to say what, what the, true, um, the true impact is. But I do know that several Federal Reserve presidents have recently resigned because of their stock holding um, and like a Fed vice chairman. Um, shout out, Richard. So, yeah, it's it's tough because it's such a prevalent issue affecting, honestly, so many people own stock. It's like just crazy that hundreds, hundreds of people do this. So just thinking about this, you know, say that I don't know anything about stocks. Let's just pretend that that's the case for a second. What's <laughs> um, so. All right. So if I is the major issue here, then that people who have these stocks are more likely to then go ahead and create laws that are beneficial to different companies in which they already have stocks. Is that is that the major issue here? That is actually the main question of my dissertation. Like, what does it actually mean for you to own stock? Like, are you going to be voting in a way that is more in line with you know, private companies. And, you know, it's tough to say, I feel like my dissertation, you know, I'll, I'll say it, I'm not, I'm not sure it uncovered the real answer to that question. Um, and like I said before, even economists have contradicting opinions on the answer to that question. Um, but yeah, I think the main concern here is that um, it's, it's when faced with a decision as to vote a certain way that will increase your assets, and vote alongside whatever this private company wants, or you know, essentially maybe losing money and you know, <laughs> voting alongside what your constituency wants. Um, that's like that's a tough decision, obviously. And yeah, like to kind of like draw another parallel to medical care. It's like how do we expect um, congressional representatives to move towards? I mean, this is you know a hypothetical, obviously, but say like constituencies wanted to move towards a more universal healthcare system. Um, how are we, how can we expect um, congressional representatives to do that when they own stock in like a bunch of financial, I mean, a bunch of uh, pharmaceutical companies? It's kind of like you're actually, you would have to forfeit at least some of your wealth in order to make these decisions. And yeah, I don't know if that answered your question. No, I think it, I think it does. I think it's, informative of just kind of like the overall issues of having, you know, public and private interests happening in the brains of people who are guiding our legislator and supposed to be, you know, controlling everything that happens to our lives. Um, and so, no, I, I, I think you covered it well, but I am interested in your research. What exactly were you looking at? What did you find? Um, 
Yeah. So what I found was that, um, see, I think this, this topic is very difficult to study because so much of it happens behind closed doors. Like, I think that things like congressional candidates, I mean, congressional representatives, like lobbying and like contributions, like some of that is documented, but you know, it's not illegal for you to sit on a board of a private company as a representative. And despite the fact that it, the Stock Act does, um, which, you know, shout out Obama, 2012 Stock Act, um, despite the fact that it does require you to disclose the stocks that you have and the trades that you make, it's remarkably difficult to actually obtain this information. And as someone that literally had to obtain it for my dissertation. Yeah, it's how like, hard was it? Will you go into detail? Because I, I was there. <laughs> so I witnessed the challenges, but will you go into a little bit more detail about why this was so challenging to actually get this information that would reveal some of the conflicts of interest that exist? Yeah, so the, the difficulty is that um, these reports are not really available in any format that is conducive to data analysis. I know that's a that might be a hot take, but um, they're literally like PDFs. Oh, <laughs> they're like PDFs that are like online that like you basically have to click each one. So I got this data from um, Andrew Eggers, who, uh, like I said, sits at U Chicago, I think um, Harris School of Public Policy, but I might be wrong. Um, yeah, so this data is very difficult to come by. I think he mentioned that him and his RAs spent a very long time getting all of this together and cleaning it. I'm sure it involved data scraping, which, you know, the average person does not know how to do. Um, so just a tremendous amount of data. And also the issue is that like these, these forms, you're just required to fill it out. You are not necessarily required to fill it out accurately. And I think that that is the issue with the Stock Act that like, it doesn't really have any teeth and it has a lot of plausible deniability because frankly, what is plausible deniability? Like you, <laughs> that is also a good question. Um, it's just hard to prove that you actually made a mistake. Okay. You know, like it's kind of like um, intent and benefit hard to prove. Um, it's just, it's difficult to police because frankly, the stock act just says like you have to disclose it and the stock act bans um, insider information. But if you can just say like, I didn't have insider information, it's very easy for you to do that, especially since a lot of these legislators meet behind closed doors. So it's like so easy for you to just pull aside another rep and be like, hey, did right. you know this is happening? And the guy's like, oh, I didn't know that was happening. I'm gonna go trade my stocks now. Yeah. And <laughs> and just like, I don't know. I don't Every time, like, I, I just feel like if you're sitting in a space like the legislator, I would be upset if you didn't know what was about to happen to the economy. Like that is like your, the very like foundation of your job is to be able to create policies and laws in which will protect the public good. And so if you're unaware of what's happening in fields, like specifically, you know, big markets and not, if you don't have that awareness, then you know, I don't know. I think maybe that is the approach that we should take to this is that if people said that they don't know that that was going to happen, we should just start making fun of them. <laughs> <laughs> because because it really, it, I mean, I, I just find that such an interesting argument. Um, 
and I and I know what you mean though. Like I, I obviously think that that's not the case, but that all of our legislators are completely up to date with all the most relevant information. And so that is going to be a beneficial argument, and we couldn't prove otherwise. But I will I do say find though that, that like um, that apparently around like sixty legislators have been caught violating the SAW Act since twenty nineteen. What's happened to them? That is a question with a very sad answer because the answer is that you literally get fined like $200 and that's it. Oh my goodness. It's just, just like, like I said, like no teeth to this bill. Um, and to be honest, like even legislation that's that's trying to be passed right now that I think the movement was kind of like spearheaded by John Ossoff, who is LSE alum. And um, I think now the bill is sponsored by Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts. What? That's where we live. <laughs> and yeah, I think even even that bill right now, like they're trying to essentially, well, I don't know if even if it's like banning, but oh, it is it is a ban. The Bipartisan Ban on Congressional Stock Ownership Act of 2022. So there are new pieces of legislation in the works. Um, but it's tough because I feel like part of the democratic process is like a lot of negotiation and a lot of compromise and sacrifice to the point where, you know, it's quite possible that a bill might really might not have teeth just like this one towards the end of the negotiating kind of process and the compromises. Okay, I get it. Yeah. Well, taking a step back and just thinking about private interests amongst legislators generally. How do you feel like lobbying groups play into this concept? Um, yeah, I mean, it's tough because I kind of feel like lobbying did have good origins. Um, apparently, I'm not sure if this is true. <laughs> Might be spinning false facts here. But guys, she said she wasn't an expert <laughs> earlier, so it's okay. Um, apparently, lobbying started from people waiting in the lobbies during these like congressional meetings and to catch these representatives as they came out to try to talk to them about like, and, you know, convince them to vote a certain way. But I think over time, it kind of became more like companies are having lobbyists that like will represent them or represent a cause that will go and try to influence policy. But I think my my beef with it is that the frequently the influence comes hand in hand with contributions. And where there's you know financial benefit, that's where I think there's a problem. Because frankly, at that point, it's like, what sort of um, organizations or companies can afford to spend a lot of money influencing policy and to what extent again are those the direction of the influence the same as the direction that the public requires and money is like and it I always money isn't real (laughs) money isn't real anyway and what is money no what I was gonna say I always want to say this word I think it's a really great word but it's inextricably intertwined with like lobbying groups like not only even if you're not giving like direct campaign contributions like say that you remove that issue the ability to become face-to-face with like a congressional leadership since you know they've gotten like they're not staying in hotels anymore and you can't just like wait in the lobby (laughs) my you have to have like the social capital you have to have the fiscal capital to even like get there like there's so many things that requires so many resources that like without having substantial resource, like substantial uh, funds, 
prior to being able to provide uh, financial contributions already makes like pluralist arguments defeated. So lobbyists got to check their privilege at the door. That's what we're saying. Yeah, before you go into the lobby. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, it's definitely true. Like, there's a reason why so many, um, I mean, I'm not sure if if this is exactly why, obviously, but a lot of, like, former representatives become lobbyists because, like, they know the system so well and they now have the connections to actually influence policy in a way that, you know, whoever they're working for wants them to do that. Um, So, yeah, it's definitely pretty crazy stuff. What can I say? It seems like money and politics in America are just so inextricably tied. (laughs) Thank you. Um, I do want to recommend to our listeners, I didn't actually know too much about lobbying, surprisingly. Um, You're not an expert either. I know, surprising. (laughs) Uh, But I, you know, I know enough about it from uh, like general social science classes and uh, crash course history, but, or crash course, uh, social, uh, crash course politics. Um, (laughs) Great YouTube channel. Also give a shout out to them. But uh, you sent me some information about the Jack Abramoff uh, scandal. And that is pretty interesting. Um, I would just recommend listeners to go check that out um, to just kind of get like a, I think a good concept about like how prevalent all this can be. Um, Also, I would definitely recommend buying Open Secrets. Um, It is a website dedicated to transparency in politics and you can see um, contributions by, you know, lobbying for, you know, where it's exactly going to which representatives. Um, Biden had the largest number of contributions, I'll say it. Um, also, you can see their, their stocks, I'm pretty sure, and like their assets. And basically, it is an entire website dedicated to transparency. So if you want to know more about who's representing you and you're in America, you can do that. I love that website, frankly. <laughs> that's good. That's a that's a much, much like more optimistic standpoint than your previous like you can't get data anywhere for this, for this stuff. No, you can't get data for an analysis. I feel like that's that's the rough part. I spent most of my dissertation just like coding in my room sadly with covid. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's definitely really difficult to like get it in excel format. Um and yeah, it was it was a lot. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. You're welcome. Really yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> um, so let's get, like, this has been a pretty sad conversation. Um, <laughs> what do you think we should do about this? Man, it's tough because I feel like there's a lot of Band-Aid solutions. And the bigger the bigger solutions are, are just, I don't know, quite frankly, a little unattainable. In what my about, eyes. like, a big band-aid <laughs> I'm talking yes. huge. um yeah it's it's tough because like I said the the penalty is usually really small for violating the the stock act um and it's kind of ironic because like the the ethics watchdog like there is like an ethics committee like at the house and it's ironic because it's made up of members <laughs> that are voting on like other members like it's just like I don't know. It's it's hard to believe that there's any actually regu- regulatory action taking place. Um, I think that like other countries have bans on things like private donations to political parties. Um, I think that 
an easy solution is blind trust. Like I think there's only around like 10 uh, members of Congress that currently have their stocks in a blind trust. Um, what is that? It's basically like you don't have access to your um, your stocks while you're oh in office. Nice. Yeah, which seems like a very that easy seems solution. like a pretty good one. I know. Yeah. Um, wow. I know, right? Oh my gosh. I think that like the ban on stocks, like although I would personally love that, I think that like it is. It, I don't know. It's tough because I'm not sure how it would be implemented. Like, would they require everyone to sell all their stocks before going in office, even if at that time the market is at like a low and you're taking an L, like still requiring them to do that? I think like having a blind trust is an easy solution. Um, I know that uh, Senator Tommy Tuberville, I don't know if I'm saying his name, but it sounds funny. <laughs> so Tommy Tuberville said the the new legislation is ridiculous and would apparently cut back on the amount of people that would want to serve um in to office. Surf? Oh. <laughs> they don't want to ride the waves anymore, man. <laughs> they got to either stop. Like it's totally tubular bill. <laughs> um yeah, it's it's pretty tough because I feel like arguments like that make me very frustrated. Even like Nancy Pelosi, as of I think a couple months ago, was against this act. So I want to stress that this is a bipartisan issue. Like of the 60 people that violated, half were Democrats, half were Republicans, like pretty much on the dot. Have we found, in, found anything valid to why they would oppose this? Like, is there any like good art? Like, is there any like solid grounded arguments besides the fact that it would somehow hurt private interests of the legislators in a way that would be like totally unfair i mean it's easy to make the the assumption that it would it's just because a lot of them are behind closed doors like you know seeking ways to increase their influence with private companies it's i feel like it's easy to to just assume that but i think like it's also the problem is that like this was at least pelosi's reasoning which i think like is also the reasoning of like a lot of other people just that like Oh, like Americans should be able, like everyone should be able to participate in the free market economy. And like everyone should be able to like do things like increase their wealth. And like we shouldn't be ashamed of that. Like, you know, we're a capitalist economy. And I think that that's kind of exactly the problem because like we have such an ingrained sense of like capitalistic values, even at the expense of like potentially aligning with whatever the public wants. Um, and yeah, it's, it's tough because I kind of feel like at times, maybe like stockholding and acting in your own private interests like can't be reconciled with like serving at a public sector position that like fundamentally requires you to think of others. Like you are in office, like that is a privilege. And I really think that that should come with some compromises and some sacrifices, such as maybe not eyeing your assets for a while. Like I kind of feel like maybe your focus should be on your constituency and like you shouldn't be bothered by like looking at your assets while you're in office. Um, yeah. But yeah, like I said, I think like blind trust is a really easy way of doing it. But I think something like lobbying is like, I don't even know how we could, how we could even address that. Like, obviously we could do something like you're not able to have like financial contributions. But like I said, America is just such a free market economy, very deeply ingrained sense of like capitalist values and individualism and I kind of feel like any intrusion on that is not very well received like I mean we can't even wear masks like that's already a problem let alone not looking at your bank account yeah you know it's interesting and, and 
not like I don't know. I I just think it's. I think the blind trust thing makes a lot of sense. I also think that it is so interesting that this many. I mean, we already knew this, but I think it just like highlights how wealthy these most of these people are before they enter into office. Like even prior to. I mean, I would love to see the increase in people's wealth just in the period of time that they've been there. Because, like, I think that would be a really good way to show, like, you know, we know that they're making relatively the same amount every year. I'm not sure how, like, cost of living adjustments accounting for that. I'm sure we could, like, code that out and stuff. But, like, how much are they increasing their general gross income or gross wealth every single year? Like, it's got to be some hugely substantial amount. And if they go do the blind trust stuff, I I would love to also compare it with people who are doing blind trust work. Um, mm, like a like an RCT, like some kind of study, <laughs> some kind of no, research. That's, that's oh my gosh, we gotta go get our PhDs. Um, oh, co-author. <laughs> honestly, that's a really like I have some stats for you. Don't worry, I got you. Okay. Um, like apparently in 2018, half the Senate was worth more than a million six hundred thousand. 90 sorry this is this is a big number i'll start over you can cut that out um in 2018 apparently half the senate was worth almost um 1.7 million and then half the members were worth less than 500,000 and per your point on making money while in office and keep in mind that the reports that they have to file reporting their um their stocks and their trades unfortunately only a range is required, which is uh, this actually proved to be very difficult to address while in my dissertation because I ended up taking just the average of the ranges, but the ranges are pretty big. Um, I think like from what I remember, if it's over 500,000 or like over like a million, you can just put like a million plus, even if it was like, you know, way over that. Well, that's, oh my goodness. So keep in mind that this range is very big, but apparently between 2007 and 2020, Nancy Pelosi and her husband made somewhere between 5 million and 30 million in returns on stock in five big tech companies being Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google, and Microsoft. And... Obviously, all of that is also impacted. All of those companies are also impacted by stricter enforcement and regulatory policies about like monopolies in the tech industry, which is like potentially things that she would be voting on. I feel like they're like anchoring us with this statistic because five million is so much. And they're like, let's just put 30 million as the high. That way, when it's only like 10 million, they won't be that mad at us. Like, that is so ridiculous. It is, it is just like it's bizarre to me especially because like yeah okay so say we have these people who are like all here for public good stuff and i totally understand like you know certain I'm, i just feel like the they have like some certain obligation once you get to a certain amount of wealth you're like oh actually i do deserve this money and therefore i should continue to earn and spend and like i have to compete with all the other like millionaires and billionaires and there's you know i'm not going to be able to create and have any influence unless i have you know an equal amount of money um, and it's just like, it's such a, uh, I don't understand it, but it would be great to dive deeper into this. I feel like I'm really grateful for you coming on to the podcast, Masha, um, for just like bringing up this issue and providing a lot of statistics and stats with your not expertise. <laughs> and um, I just think, yeah, it's been a great conversation that I feel like we could all dive deeper into. Um and, you know, get really fired up about for the midterms. 
Yeah, just a reminder, if you're interested in this, call your reps. Tell them to be like, pass this bill, man. Yeah. What are some other things that individuals could do? Mm, stage a revolution, overthrow the capitalist regime. Um, sorry, what? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, I think, like, obviously calling your representatives, um, your... I don't know who my senator is. I'm ba- well, it's Elizabeth Warren in Massachusetts, but I'm technically still in Illinois. So I know like my, my representative is Jan Schakowsky, but I think homegirls got my back. What can I say? Um, but yeah, contacting your representatives and urging them to vote on the bill. And the bill is called S.3631, Bipartisan Ban on Congressional Stock Ownership Act of 2022. Um, this bill is still in the un- introductory stages. It has not passed Senate or passed the House has not reached Biden's office. So I kind of feel like right now is the time to hype this up. Um, but <laughs> yeah, other than that, I feel like it's, I don't, I don't really know what else to do. Yeah, just encourage um, your representatives to take action. I, I also think like something, something that's been really nice about this specific recording is um, the fact that we we're discussing like actual bills that we can talk about and have some sort of like reaction to and I think you know kind of like looking at your research and like what you've done I think another thing that we can like encourage listeners to do is just like if there's an issue such as this that you are passionate about if it's not this then to like do some digging and find what's actually being talked about on the federal level in your local state level um because I might invite you on the podcast (laughs) no because I, I think you know we can all do something about it but also if you if you're not interested in this you're dead to me so (laughs) (laughs) oh all right and scene this was policy wise an intergenerational podcast by youth leadership institute focused on bringing young people into the policy conversation don't forget to follow us on instagram facebook and twitter at policy wise pod if you have any questions or topics you'd like us to discuss please slide into our dms or send us an email at policywise at yli.org and stay tuned for upcoming episodes.